I'm Vanessa Pritchard. Welcome to this podcast from Keep Believing Ministries. Today's message was given by Dr. Ray Pritchard. At Keep Believing Ministries, we want to encourage and equip people to keep believing in Jesus. You can find us online at www.keepbelieving.com. Stay tuned for this special podcast. Open your Bibles, please, to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I want to talk to you for a few minutes tonight on the subject, why can't we all get along? Why can't we all get along? It's the question of the ages. It's a question as old as Cain and Abel. It's Rodney King's question after the riots in Los Angeles, 1992. You remember the one thing he said that made headlines. Can't we all just get along? Quarter of a century later, it appears that the answer is no. We look at America. America is a divided nation. We're divided spiritually. We're divided religiously. We're certainly divided politically. Nothing really has changed here in this country. We don't agree with each other. We don't like each other. Sometimes we even hate each other. Headlines. Two brothers charged in fatal stabbing. One dead in school shooting. Heated argument turns deadly. The problem is not confined to America. We live on a blood-soaked planet where brother rises up against brother, parents against children, children against parents. Who would be surprised this week to find out that war had broken out on the Korean Peninsula or in China or in Syria or in Iran? Who would be surprised if this week there was another terrorist bombing in London, Rome, or Berlin. For that matter, who would really be surprised if there was another terrorist attack somewhere here in America? These days, these apocalyptic days, I hear people talking about Armageddon. I hear them talking about the second coming. I hear people who don't go to church, who don't read the Bible, talk about the end of days. I saw this headline not that long ago. World War III fears rise. A few days ago, Henry Kissinger commenting on the situation in the Korean Peninsula said that the temptation is almost overwhelming for the United States to launch a preemptive attack against North Korea. North Korea answered back and said that the U.S. is pushing the world toward the final nuclear war. That makes, all of that makes, the question of our text even more relevant. James raises a question that is not just national and international and geopolitical. It is personal. It is intensely relational. James chapter 4 verse 1, he says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? There are, as I have already pointed out, hot spots everywhere, especially in Asia, especially in the Middle East. That is only one part of the problem. Really, this problem of fighting and quarrels and hatred 
is much closer to home. Turn on the TV, surf the internet, read the Drudge Report, watch Fox News, pick up your local newspaper. What will you read about? Violent crime, muggings, drive-by shootings, sexual violence, child abuse, marital conflict, and lawlessness in the streets. It seems to me that in the last few years, the national blood pressure has gone up a hundred points, and it seems there's no sign at all to me that it is about to go down. But the problem is not just international, and it is not just national. It's not just out there in society. The problem James wants us to think about is the problem of fighting and quarreling and unhappiness inside the Christian community. Sometimes inside the church, we fight the Lord's battles with the weapons of the flesh. Sometimes inside the body of Christ, we use the ways of the world to get our own way. There's a reason Galatians 5 says, but if you bite one another and devour one another, be careful lest you destroy one another. Of course, we all understand, don't we? We're living in a social media age. I wonder how many of us are on Twitter. I wonder how many of us from Facebook, maybe just a few years ago when I would come here to Florida and speak and mention Twitter, and the heads would just go, what are you talking about? But if I mention Facebook, almost everybody here is on Facebook. Well, here's the thing about social media. It doesn't just encourage interaction. It encourages quick opinions. It encourages um, it encourages you to get angry. It encourages you to speak your mind. This is the world in which we live. So the question James wants us to ponder tonight, where does all of this come from? And he's going to tell us there are three battles we face. There is the battle within, there is the battle without, and there is the battle above. First, James is going to tell us that the problem is the battle within. Here's the question. What is the source of all the fighting, all the conflicts, all the unhappiness among you? Remember, he's not writing to the world. He's writing to people just like you and me. What's the source of all the conflict? And here is his answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James begins by revealing the true source of all conflict. In the words of the great Pogo, we have met the enemy and he is us. So why are we so unhappy? Why do we fight with others? Why do we keep getting in trouble? When Listen carefully now. The answer to those questions, it's not out there somewhere. It's not out there in what we call the world. It's not out there in the problems of the world. The answer is not out there. James tells us, first of all, that the real problem is always in here in the heart. We are messed up on the outside because we are messed up on the inside. And when he says in verse 1, is it not this, that your passions, and your translation may say desire, that's okay too, that your passions, it's in the Greek, it's hedone, hedone. We get from it hedonism, hedonistic. Is it not this, that your desire for pleasure, your desire for satisfaction, is it not that it gets stirred up within you and eventually is out of control? What is hedonism? It's the desire for pleasure apart from God. We want what we want, when we want it. We won't be happy until we get it. Well, this is a good reminder. This is Super Bowl Sunday. Maybe you remember that beer commercial slogan from some years ago. Maybe they still do it today. You only go around in life once. 
Go for all the gusto. Well, you couldn't find anything that's more truly hedonistic in life. You know, the first part of that phrase is true. You do only go around once. But the second part, apart from God, to go for all the gusto is likely to lead you to your own destruction. Here's James' point. The passions that are within you and me, they are at war within us. And that's why we're miserable. We want what we don't have. We don't have a place to live. We want an apartment. We have an apartment. We want a condo. If we have a condo, we want a house in the suburbs. If we have a house in the suburbs, we want a bigger house in the suburbs. If we get a bigger house in the suburbs, we want a vacation home, maybe down here in Florida. If we get one in Florida, we want one out in Colorado so we can go skiing. If we have no money, we want some money. If we have some money, we want more money. If we have lots of money, we want a whole lot more money. We are never satisfied. We want more money. We want a better house. Maybe we want a different spouse, which leads you in all sorts of bad directions. Really, the ultimate thing we want is control. We want to be able to run our own little corner of the universe. That's why we fight. Abraham Lincoln was walking down the street one day, two of his sons in tow. The boys were fighting and bickering and making a big fuss. And his neighbor said, Mr. Lincoln, what's the matter with your boys? The answer came, just what's the matter with the whole world? I've got three walnuts, and each boy wants two. Nothing has changed, has it? Note what these passions do. James says, they fight within us, making us miserable, frustrated, and irritable because they whisper in our ear, you deserve something better. You're being mistreated. Stop playing nice and go get what you want. Listen now, listen. Those inner voices that play in our head, they're very seductive because they speak to us in moments of weakness when we're tired and out of sorts or alone or feeling sorry for ourselves. It's a constant battle to stay on the right path and not give in to the passions of life because those passions are crying out for a quick shortcut to happiness. Thus, thus, with the same mouth, we bless, we curse, we love and we hate, we serve and we steal, we proclaim Christ and lie to our friends, we read the Bible and watch dirty movies, we sing in the choir, and then we have an affair. The manifestations differ, but all of us feel the struggle. That's the first battle. James says, what's the problem in the world? The problem in the world is not in the world. The problem in the world is the problem in us, the uncontrolled passions of life. Battle number one, the war within. Battle number two, the war without. Look at the end of verse two. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Let me just say something to you. When you read here in the text, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Do not water that down. Sometimes when people talk about this, they say it's only symbolic. Well, certainly it is. It certainly is a symbol, but it's more than that. It's a reality. You desire, you want something, and so you kill for it. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight. You quarrel. So I'm saying the word murder there is literal. So why do we kill each other? 
Look, read the papers. Watch the news. Listen to the reports. I kill you because you've got something and I want it. Why do you kill me? Because I've got something you want. It really is as simple as that. Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it is said, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder already in your heart. That's really something to think about. We murder with our words. We murder with our rumors. We murder with our insults. We murder with our lies. little word there. Verse 2. You covet. You covet. You covet. You covet. It, it, it literally means to boil with envy. To boil with envy. 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 The jaundice of the soul. Envy. The corrosive influence that makes us unhappy at the success of others. That makes us frustrated when other people have something we don't have. Envy. It's that desire that, that within us that makes us glad when somebody we don't like falls or gets into trouble. Envy is the desire to take something that doesn't belong to us. You remember, of course, the supreme example in the Old Testament after David had slain Goliath. He came back into the city. And the women were chanting and singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And it says in the text, and Saul envied David. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's literally, and Saul envidioed David. Saul was filled with envy. Look, if you can kill thousands, you are a mighty warrior. But that wasn't enough. Saul had slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And that was the turning point that, that, that sent Saul into his tailspin. From that moment on, he hated David and wanted to kill him. Envy, of course, is the sin of moderately successful people. We say that again. Envy is the sin of moderately successful people. Because we can't stand to see others do better than us. We fight and quarrel. We call names. We secretly think we would have done better if we'd only gotten the breaks. We temper our compliments with the word but. We gloat when someone gets caught because they had it coming to them. We can't bear to hear our friends complimented in our presence. We're quicker to criticize than to praise. And you know what the real problem here? The real problem is <laughs> what my problem is tonight. Envy is a deadly sin because it's a lot easier to see in someone else and it's really hard to see it in yourself. It's easy to spot somebody else who's boiling with envy. It's really hard to see it when you look in the mirror. And I just pause to think of, you know, of all these all these years I've been in the ministry, I think I've had people come and confess almost every kind of sin to me. But almost never have I had somebody come to me and say, I am struggling with the sin of envy. It's a sin that people don't want to think about, don't want to admit, don't want to confess. But James is saying here, because you boil with envy on the inside, which nobody else may know about, you fight, you criticize, you attack other people.
So watch this. David wanted Bathsheba. So what did he do? He had Uriah murdered on the battlefield to cover up his evil desire. And when we talk about David, we talk about him as an adulterer and a murderer, which is true. But beneath the adultery and beneath the murder was uncontrolled desire that led to envy, that led to terrible crimes. That's why this passage in James is, uh, is, uh, <laughs> well, it's a, it's a convicting passage. You either have to go over it quick or you really got to stop and think about it because James is digging down deep down deep inside your heart and mind and saying the real battles of life, they are not out there. Your problems are not with other people. Your real problem. I, I, I still remember years ago when Joe Stoll, great friend of ours here at Word of Life, and Dr. Joe Stoll was the president of Moody Bible Institute. Most of the time that Marley and I were in Chicago, he was the president of the Institute. And, and one day, Joe Stoll was preaching and he said, you know, somebody came up to me the other day and said, Dr. Stoll, what is the greatest challenge you face as the president of Moody Bible Institute? And Dr. Stoll said, it was clear. They thought I was going to say raising all that money or dealing with the faculty, or solving all the problems of the student body, or having dealing with the city of Chicago, all and all the kind of things that a president would deal with. And Joel Stoll said, I thought about it and said, the greatest challenge I face is the man in the mirror. That's a good answer. That's a really good answer answer that's the kind of thing james wants us to think about tonight we want to say that our problems are out there our problems are not out there now we got issues out there but our real problems the real struggles of life the man in the mirror the woman in the mirror that's the real challenge we all have to face so number one the battle within the desires within us battle number two the war without how we relate to other people, and the envy that corrodes our relationships with other people. Battle number three. He says it's the war above. The war above. First it's within, then it's without. But you know, in the end, you got to deal with God, right? That's where it's got to come to. you got to deal with God. First on the inside, then other people, and finally you got to deal with God. Where does all this come from? All of our problems? Look, he says... You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your, same word, spend it on your passions, hedone, to spend it on your own selfish, uncontrolled desires. You adulterous people. That's kind of crazy. That's kind of crazy. That's crazy. I mean, wow. Calling church people, adulterous people. That's what James is doing. He's not talking to outsiders. He's talking to us, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is in these verses a downward progression 
And it is not a pretty sight. First, there is self-reliance. You do not have because you do not ask. First mark of the backsliding Christian. It's not out there, it's in here. The first mark of the backsliding Christian is we just don't pray. We just don't pray. Either we don't believe in it, or we think it doesn't matter, or maybe we think we can handle it on our own. First, there's self-reliance, but that leads on down. Second, there's selfish prayer. You do pray, he says, but you pray only to spend it on your passions. That is to say, you pray, but you treat God as if he were a celestial bellhop. As if you can just ring the bell in your prayers and God has got to come running to you to meet your needs according to whatever you say. Self-reliance down to selfish prayer. But look, third, kind of hit bottom here. Third, there is spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. This is very extreme. Very extreme. Now, in the translation I read just a minute ago, My translation reads, you adulterous people. That's not literally what the Greek says. In the Greek, it is plural and feminine. Feminine. Literally, it's adulteresses. 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 Why would you say that? Well, remember, James was written to Jewish Christians in, in the early days of the Christian movement, who would have understood that image from the Old Testament where Yahweh God said to Israel, I am betrothed to you. You, you are, you, you, you are, you are like my wife. I want, I, I am like a husband to you. You are to be like a wife to me. And this is to be our relationship, which is why throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, over and over again in the prophets, The warning is given. You have gone a-whoring, a-whoring after other gods. Judges 2.17, one example. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. My comment is this. It's very easy for us in the 21st century to, to read a passage like Judges 2 and then later... And the prophets read this and go, well, sure. Well, sure. They went a whoring after the other gods because they, 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 they started throwing some Baal worship. And then they, they got this god Moloch. You know, Moloch, one part of the worship of Moloch was to, was to, uh, had the brass arms, fill it with the, fill it with the burning charcoal. And they would offer, they would offer their own children as burning sacrifices to Moloch. And, and we're told they would erect the Asherah poles and the high places. That was all about getting closer to the God and also to, to, to the God of the Asherah pole or to Baal or to Moloch. And here's the tricky thing about it. Here's the tricky thing. The people of Israel, in their minds, they were not, they were not abandoning God. 
They were simply saying, we will worship you, O Lord. And we're going to throw in a little bale on the side. We will worship you, Almighty God. But we're going to put up an Asherah pole just to be sure. We will worship you, O Lord. But we're also going to worship the God called Moloch. And they, they said, it's as if they, as if they said, okay, it's going to be Jehovah plus Baal, Jehovah plus Moloch, Jehovah plus all the other pagan gods. As if, as if by doing that, as if by going a whoring after the false gods and yet still claiming to worship God, as if they're saying, Lord, don't worry about it. You are still our number one God. That's like a, that's like a wife who says to her husband, sure, I've got lovers, but you'll always be number one in my book. Part of the problem of this passage, by the way, we're going to continue on through James 4. I'll explain this more tomorrow morning. But part of the problem and the challenge of this part of the book of James is we come to a passage like this about spiritual adultery. We can get it that we're, we can get it. We're not supposed to lose our temper. We can get it that envy's not right. We can get it that there's a problem on the inside of all of us. But I think there's something in us that just goes, wow, James, you've been a little bit extreme here. So I lose my temper. How is that spiritual adultery? But that's exactly what he is saying. That is exactly what he is saying. He is saying an uncontrolled temper, envy, Greed and jealousy, that actually is spiritual adultery against the God of the universe. We all have our excuses. We're tired. Kids are cranky. The husband's cranky. I'm just letting off steam. That's just the way I am. Or the great excuse we sometimes give. Yes, I'm angry, but it's righteous anger. And isn't it interesting? He says... He says to people who make excuses like that, adulteresses, adulteresses. So how does a physical affair happen? Well, there's a distance in the relationship. And a substitute comes along to fill the gap. And over time, there's an emotional connection. Then you begin to meet clandestinely. In the old days, that was like, you know, you meet at some shop or meet at some store, or meet at some motel room. But, but now it's much more likely that clandestine meeting will happen in a chat room or using one of the apps that is so easy. So you meet clandestinely and finally there's a culminating act of adultery. Look, look, no Christian husband ever wakes up and says, I think I'm going to commit adultery today. It happens so subtly. Your unhappiness leads to estrangement that creates loneliness that opens the door to another person. One thing leads to another and suddenly your marriage is in ruin. And everybody here has seen that happen. It's the same way in the spiritual realm. We never set out to be unfaithful to God. Far from it. But our God is a jealous lover. He wants our allegiance, our total allegiance, body, soul, and spirit. So, spiritual adultery, which is what James is talking about, happens because we get our feelings hurt. Someone betrays us. A friend mistreats us. And little by little, anger gets a foothold in the heart. And from that base camp of sin, Satan can now attack in any direction he wants. Meanwhile, we have become the enemy of God, even while attending church and going through all the motions. I have said, I probably have said this before in years past, and I still think it's true. 
You know, when you begin to move away from God this way, when you get angry, when you get your feelings hurt, when you carry a grudge, when you have all these unresolved issues, when your passions get the best of you, you still go to church. But it really doesn't matter. In the end, you become a practical atheist or a very angry Christian. There's really not much difference between those two categories. Our lust for pleasure, James says, has hardened into spiritual adultery. We're unfaithful to God, even while singing His praises on Sunday morning. So what's the answer? How can we find our way back to God? Thank goodness, James doesn't leave us to wonder about this. He gives us the answer. How can an adulterous believer come back to the Lord? Verse 5 tells us, Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over us, He, he, he yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. Now, you probably heard me stumble as I quoted that verse. That's because that verse is translated about 70 different ways. All the commentators agree. This is the most difficult verse in the book of James. The one part of it is James says, the scripture says, but there's no place in the Bible where this literal verse is quoted. I'll tell, I agree with the commentators who say what's really going on here is James is thinking about all that the Old Testament says about the jealousy of the Lord. And he's telling us, that God is jealous for the undivided love of His people. When God gave the Ten Commandments, no other gods before me, right? No graven images. Shall not bow down before them. And here is how the Second Commandment is enforced in Exodus 20, verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, we could spend 40 minutes right there. Just say this. Our God is a God of love. He's a God of kindness and a God of mercy. But understand, the God of the Bible is a jealous God. He is jealous for your undivided attention. Let me say it to you this way. There is such a thing as godly jealousy. So, 43 and a half years ago, I said I do, and Marlene said I do, and so we did, and we have been journeying along now for all this time. We didn't know what we were getting into. It's good. It's better that way, I think. Who can really know what you're going to get into when you get married, right? No book can really explain what it's like. I don't know. I don't feel like, any, even after 43 and a half years, I don't feel like any kind of expert in the area of marriage whatsoever. But I wish to say this about my wife. She has the right to be jealous for my undivided attention. She has the right. In the same way of a husband to the wife. What would we think of a husband who said to his wife, Oh, go ahead and have an affair. It won't bother me. We would think he didn't love his wife. A man who doesn't care if his wife is faithful is a man who doesn't really want to be married. True love is jealous. And you can write that down. True love is jealous. If the love is right, then the jealousy is right. 
So what is it that God is jealous for? Our undivided attention, our exclusive focus on Him. Because God loves us, He wants our wholehearted devotion. Because God redeemed us, He wants our grateful obedience. Because God adopted us, He wants our loyal love. So, let's come on down now to the bottom line. If the goal of your life is pleasure apart from God, you can have pleasure, but your life will be filled with conflict. Your emotions will rule your decisions. Your anger will lead you to arguments. And you may end up actually killing someone. Don't say that couldn't happen. It can happen. And it does. All the time. I wonder how many of us have gotten into trouble because our anger led us to do, do something stupid. How many of us have gotten in trouble because our anger led us to say something stupid? That's exactly what James is talking about. I wonder how many marriages have been broken, how many friendships have ended, how many jobs have been lost, how many churches have blown apart because we lost our temper and said something we later regretted. To our sorrow, we have all proved the truth of this passage. Our uncontrolled desires lead us into conflict. Our conflict leads us into anger, and our anger draws us away from God. In the end... We become, exactly what James said, spiritual adulterers without even knowing it. Passion, passion. It's fire in the heart. We all need passion to keep us motivated. Passion gives us our drive. It gets us out of bed in the morning. By itself, passion, strong desires, neither good nor bad. Fiery passion can bring warmth or it can burn the whole house down. Fire in the fireplace, good. Fire in the living room, bad. One other last thing, and here we're going to end, is really where we have to end. Back in verse 1, because I really didn't emphasize this. What is the cause of all the fighting and anger among you? Is it not the passions that are at war within you? It's interesting. Literally, literally, it reads, the passions that are at war within you in your members, in the parts of your body. Romans 6.13 tells us to yield our members to God as instruments of righteousness. Spiritual victory will never be real for you until you make it definite regarding the parts of your body. Let's talk about your eyes. Have you been looking at things this week that you'd be ashamed for the rest of us to know about? Let's talk about your ears. Have you been listening to gossip, slander, filthy talk, coarse humor? Let's talk about your lips. Have you used your lips this week for swearing, for anger, for bitterness? Are your lips yielded to God? What about your hands? Are your hands yielded to God? Or do you use your hands to hurt other people? What about your feet? Are your feet yielded to God? Or are they taking you where you shouldn't go? What about the most intimate parts of your body? Are those parts yielded to God? Or are you using them for evil purposes? Here's the good news. When your lips become His, and your ears become His, and your eyes become His, and your hands and your feet and every part of your body, when it all become His, all becomes His, you know what's going to happen? You will be his 
That little thing I just did. A little thing I just did right there. I thought about this when I prepared the sermon. You know where I first heard that? Jack Wertzen on the island, 1972. Dedication night. Your eyes. Isn't it interesting? Everything comes back to the real, simple, basic truths of life. Romans says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. I love Warren Wiersbe's comment. The problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. <laughs> That's always the challenge for any sermon like this. Always the challenge for any sermon like this. The problem we all, I think, feel tonight is the, the problem of the hymn writer. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave. But God... I love, here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And it's right here at the end of the message that the gospel becomes so important. Because I am not preaching to you, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just try to be better. I am not preaching, go out from here and be nicer. I am preaching to you gospel truth. For if the gospel of Jesus means anything, it means that God will take you just as you are right now, filled with passion, tempted by the world, having stumbled and fallen again and again. He, our great God, He's a jealous God. He's also a God of grace. He yearns for your love. He calls you by His Spirit. And He will not let you rest until you find rest in Him. And aren't you glad tonight Jesus doesn't leave us alone in our sin? Aren't you glad Jesus came for us? Aren't you glad He yearns for our devotion? Let me end in, like all preachers, I've had about three endings here, but this is the real one now. Okay, this is the real one right here. One glass, really good word. This is the first part of verse 6. But at the end of all of that, He gives more grace. Not just He gives grace, He gives more grace. What a wonderful thought that is. More grace when we are weary. More grace when we are scared. More grace when we feel trapped. More grace when we have doubts. More grace when we have messed up. If you think you deserve grace, you can never have it. If you admit you don't deserve it, you can have as much as you need. Rodney King Ask the plaintive question, can't we all get along? The world says no, because the world has no power to change the human heart. Only Jesus can do that, but He can do it. He can do it. He can replace fear with hope, despair with gladness, guilt with forgiveness, he can wash away the envy and the jealousy and the hatred and the critical spirit. He can do divine heart surgery. He can do it. I agree with those who say Christians ought to lead the way in bringing peace to this broken world. We ought to be peacemakers. We ought to be. But we can't do that until we've repented of our own worldliness. But when we do, when we finally begin to take seriously by God's grace, dealing with the man in the mirror, the woman in the mirror, looking at what's really going on inside and asking the Lord to do His work in us, then at last, the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi 
will be fulfilled. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, do whatever it takes to bring our passions into full submission before You. Send Your Spirit to cleanse us from the inside out. Lord, we confess tonight. We confess the problem's not out there. Forgive us for blaming other people for the bad attitudes within. Forgive us, Lord, for blaming everything else and not facing what we need to face. Shine the light of Your Spirit. Cleanse us from the inside out. Spirit of the living God, come, fill us, cleanse us, use us, change us. Root out our love of the world and replace it, we pray, with a fresh love for Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. Come see us on the internet at www.keepbelieving.com. We'd love to hear from you this week. Join us for the next podcast from Keep Believing Ministries.